Picture this. You awake to the thick smell of smoke. Your house has caught fire, but you have enough time to save one of your possessions. What would you choose? This is a classic thought experiment. It's not really meant to measure what you would save. It's a litmus test for your values. Our team visited Professor Elaine Traharn of Stanford University's English department, where she showed us something she has saved. It's a Bible, rescued from the firestorms of time. But once, the book belonged to someone else, Elaine's ancestor, a Welsh man named Edward Evans. He wrote his name in it. I have counted. I suspect I'm not exactly spot on, but I've counted 29 times. Early in the book, he writes a little poem, and then he goes, When I am dead and out of mind, in this book my name shall find. When I am dead and in the grave, in this book my name shall have. At Stanford, Elaine directs a project called Stanford Ordinary People Extraordinary Stories. It's a project to reclaim voices that are often marginalised in the record, if you like, the kind of cultural record. We tend to privilege books and artefacts that belong to celebrities, but what about all of those other books and materials that you find in junk shops? So I have set about collecting those things wherever I go. I probably have now something like 50 or 60 individual archives. Behind every act of preservation is a value judgment. We preserve food because it's practical. The Egyptians preserved the bodies of pharaohs and royalty, believing they needed special preparation to travel to the afterlife. At research institutions, scholars like Elaine preserve artifacts to build a historical record. Yet for every object we save from the clutches of time, there are countless more we allow to decay and fade away. Edward Evans's Bible has now been preserved for hundreds of years since its creation. Or, more accurately, partially preserved. It's been eaten through a little bit by bookworms, and you can tell from looking at the state of the spine and the slightly battered nature of the spine that it's really an exceptionally well-used book. For Elaine, it is striking that Edward Evans chose to inscribe his name 29 times. I think he was trying to preserve the memory of himself. And I think that that is an absolutely overriding human desire to be remembered. Someday, your possessions might join the ranks of Edward Evans' Bible as tributes to generations past. You're listening to State of the Human, a podcast by the Stanford Storytelling Project. Each episode, we look at a universal human experience, like dying or imagining or naming, and bring you stories that tackle our understanding of that experience. In this show, we will look at the experience of preserving. I'm Andy Lee. What does preserving reveal about our values? Maybe a book dealer might give me, I don't know, like maybe $100 for it. But it's my family Bible, so you couldn't give me... Okay, maybe a million. I might take a million for it if anybody's interested.
Producer Regina Kong visits the Northern California Falconry School, founded by a woman who has dedicated her life to preserving the ancient tradition of falconry. Come along for some close encounters of the bird kind. Don Diego is a Sonoran hawk. His full name is Don Diego Alejandro Santiago Zaragoza and Nego Montoyo Delgado. And I do a lot of school events, so all the kids would say, go Diego, go, which bothered me. <clears throat> but I like that, you know, they are a Sonoran desert bird, so it's kind of Princess Bride meets Zorro. And I gave him one of those beautiful long, you know, California names. So he would be noble and proud. Up close, he has dark, piercing eyes. His body is a rich russet color with white and black tail feathers. It's a deadly and powerful body. They can grab you faster than a rattlesnake can strike you. He has about 200 pounds per square inch of gripping pressure in his feet. My name is Kate Martin and I'm a master falconer. Don Diego is Kate's teaching partner. Kate is the founder of West Coast Falconry, a school where anyone can take a lesson and fall in love with the birds. Everybody has an emotional connection with raptors. It's just this really intense thing. We, I've been read, I read books about it because people are, tend to be more connected to predator animals. So we think it's a forward-facing eyes. And I think part of it is arguably 10,000 years of interaction with these, with these birds. In early civilizations across the world, in Mongolia, Mesopotamia, and the Middle East, falconers trained their birds to hunt small game for food. Later in Europe, it became a sport of kings, and queens too. But those ways of life are rapidly disappearing. Today, there are less than 5,000 licensed falconers in the US. Even fewer are women. Falconry is a pretty misunderstood sport, and it has a reputation for cruelty. Because we use a wild bird as our hunting partner, so they feel like this must be a form of slavery. When Kate founded West Coast Falconry in 2005, she thought long and hard about how she would get Americans to care about an obscure and often controversial practice. I think that you can preserve something better by, te by teaching people about it than you can by hiding it. You know, one of my little catchphrases is preservation through education. Her preservation efforts come from a place of deep awe, as well as a profound devotion that borders on something darker. It's not a hobby, it's a virus. And it'll, you know, it never goes away, and it'll make and break relationships and make and break marriages, and you'll lose your job or get a job. You know, it's just, most falconers, we're just obsessed by it. It's just part of our life. Kate's obsession with falconry began with an impossibility. It was the late 1960s. And I think we were still wearing dresses at school. We couldn't wear pants yet. She was eight years old when a master falconer came to her school. And then he had a, a bald eagle that John F. Kennedy had given him. Now for my generation, that's like God giving you a bald eagle. That's really impressive. The story could have easily ended there. But then the master falconer brought out a red-tailed hawk. 
but that was that was where I really got the bug. That age is where, when you talk to falconers, that's where a lot of them get the bug. The hawk flew around the classroom before settling on the master falconer's arm. In a jolt, Kate realized that she didn't just admire the falconer. She wanted to be him. But she stayed quiet. I was too shy and too well-trained to ask, you know, how do I become a falconer? How do you become a falconer? Well, for starters, you have to pass an exam through California Fish and Game. Then you have to find someone with at least five years of experience as a licensed falconer to be your sponsor. When Kate started looking for a sponsor, she found herself being ignored a lot. Most of the master falconers she met were men, and they just wouldn't talk to her. Kate almost gave up, but then something extraordinary happened. She was volunteering at a Renaissance fair in Marin County when a man and his wife approached her. And I told him what I was doing and he reaches in his pocket and he says, my name's Earl Walton and I'm a master falconer and if you want to become a real falconer, let me know and I'll help you. I felt like a door was being opened that I was wanting to open for most of my life. When you wait 30 years for something and it finally arrives, what do you do? Kate did what her eight-year-old self could only dream of doing. She gave Earl a call and Kate became a real-life master falconer. But also the thing that it does is it makes that center part of your arm the highest point. That's what he's right. going to fly to. So we're going to get in a circle and I'm going to say something like left shoulder to It's early morning at West Coast Falconry in Marysville, a town just outside of Sacramento, California. The car ride takes us past farmland and hills dotted with trees. I'm with some producers from the Stanford Storytelling Project. And we're here for our very first falconry lesson. Shoulder to the hawk. That means I want you to turn your body. I'm the hawk. Yep, so that your left shoulder is facing the hawk. Kate is dressed in flannel and sturdy boots. She fits each of us with a single leather glove. Her assistants smear a dab of raw quail meat between our thumb and index fingers. after us. This is the front of my body. This is the front of my body. So if we say shoulder to the hawk, arm, arm in front of your body, you need to be able to see your fist in yeah. front of your mug. We practice together. Today we get to work with Hancock, a Harris hawk with mottled brown feathers. One, two, three. Ooh. Nice job. <laughs> I thought we had one more. She was over there grinning. Finally, it's my turn. One, two, yeah. three. Hancock swoops down from the tree and lands on my arm. His talons dig into my leather glove. He's heavier than I imagined, and there's definitely a sharpness to him. And I'm realizing it's terrifying to be in the presence of something I know could kill me if it wanted to. To Kate, the connection between a falconer and her bird is both personal and spiritual. Every time I fly the bird, I'm letting it go. 
It's her choice. I think I've had three birds, actually four birds fly away. It's a nice warm June day and she just flew into this tree and she would not come down for love and money. I went home and I got brought back a whole dead quail and she sat in that tree and I walked around that tree until the sun went down, got poison oak all over myself. And she just kind of looks at me and shakes her feathers out and spreads her wings and flies away. I think about this during our falconry lesson. As the birds fly over our heads, of course, I want them to land on our gloves. But another part of me wants them to be free, to fly wherever they want. There's that old saying, if you love something, let it go. But is it worth it to love wild creatures that may not love you back? Maybe it's about loving things because they are different from us. Because they remind us of what we are not. I don't know, I kind of live vicariously through them anyway. I've always thought flying would be like the coolest thing in the world. Just to be able to have wings and just take off and leave everything behind whenever you wanted to. Amber moved in next door to Kate when she was 13 years old. And she's been working at West Coast Falconry ever since. Seeing that bird fly back to you is just something you don't get anywhere else. It gives you connection to nature, you know, because you're working with a wild animal. Um, but it also gives you a connection to your ancestry and you just, you, you almost feel it when you're, when you're working with the birds. It's like, I've done this before or somebody I know, you know, down my line has. It's, it's amazing. As access to open land shrinks, falconry is more and more in danger of disappearing. Kate hopes that the lessons she offers through West Coast Falconry preserve more than just the sport itself. The main impetus for teaching is so that we don't lose this amazing heritage. It's a heritage rooted in history and culture, but it's also a heritage about the communities formed from the passion and commitment this sport requires. After our falconry lesson, someone asked me how I feel. I don't even know how to describe how I feel. I just... happy, I guess. <laughs> I'm at a loss for words because I'm recognizing what a privilege and an honor it is to be able to interact so closely with these wild creatures. Falconry is a sport that tests you. It demands patience, tenacity, and a willingness to connect with birds that in the end belong to no one. I have seen the lark soar high at morn. Someone once told me that falconry is a sport that will break your heart in a thousand different ways. At first, I didn't understand, but after meeting Kate, I realized that falconry will break your heart in a thousand different ways because those who preserve it put their hearts on the line. It's a love that doesn't always come back, but it's also a love that's so worth it. You see a bird of prey that it rocks something in the, in the core of your being. I don't know anybody that's not impacted by a bird of prey. 
to see that look of wonder and it helps me to 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 remember what it was like for me the first time I had my bird fly to my glove. If I could lure my singing bird from his own cozy nest, if I could catch my singing bird, I would warm him on my breast. That story was produced by Regina Kong. If you walk down the one main street in Boonville, a tiny Northern California town, you might hear a language you won't hear anywhere else. It's called Boonling. Boonling got its start in the 1890s, and it's still spoken in Boonville today. Well, kind of. In this story, we take a closer look at language preservation. Our producers learn that when it comes to keeping the language of Boontling alive, saving a couple thousand regional words from extinction is a decision more complex and more political than you might think. California 128 is a long, winding road cutting through a thick redwood forest. Long, twisted branches create a canopy overhead, and sunlight fights to shine through the foliage. Like most roads, there are many signs along the way, but one of them is impossible to miss. At this point, you're probably thinking, here it is again. Welcome to Anderson Valley, home of Hendywood State Park, Gormangano's shy as the shovel tooth. Only part of this sign is written in English. Here's what the non-English part says. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. It may seem like an odd message for a welcome sign, but this little phrase actually speaks to the history of the valley. For a long time, Anderson Valley was primarily a place for apple farmers, shepherds, and cattle ranchers. The people here lived slow, quiet lives. Whether you were from Philo, or Yorkville, or Navarro, it was rare to speak with anyone outside of your town. It sounds like your typical rural America, but by the late 1800s, something unusual was happening in one of those towns. In Boonville, a new lingo was being born, bootling. According to locals, the origin of bootling is shrouded in mystery. Some say it was to gossip about a pregnancy out of wedlock. Others say women invented it to gossip about someone else, their husbands. And still others say it was a way for local kids to talk behind their parents' backs. 
the Tweeds wanted to harp on some notch stuff, and so they kind of developed a little ring so they could kind of talk about stuff among themselves that, that the parents or whatever didn't get. And then they gradually became parents and grandparents, and the lingo kind of grew. That was Rod DeWitt. Rod's one of the last bootling speakers in town. And he doesn't just speak bootling. He's actually created a dictionary filled with bootling words, past and present. Whenever someone makes a new bootling word, Rod adds it. Rod says that, as more people learn bootling, local schools began teaching it as if it were a second language. The lingo then evolved into an essential part of Boonville's culture. That was Doug, a regular at the Anderson Valley Brewing Company. For people who don't speak Bootling, it can be hard to follow. Yeah, what does it feel like to hear the full fluency? It's baffling, because you have no idea what they're saying. How did Bootling become so baffling? There are a number of different ways to know the words. Uh, one, of, one of the most amusing ones is they would take somebody's name in the bottle, and it wouldn't mean them, it would mean some idiosyncrasy about them. One of the most iconic examples of this is the boot word for phone booth, Bucky Walter. Bucky is, is a nickel, and that's because the old buffalo nickel had an Indian head on the one side. So the, the bootling name for, for Indian is Beak Inch, so it was Buck Indian. So Beak Inch, so it was a Bucky, and uh, the, the payphone took nickels. And Walter Levi was the first guy with a phone in the valley, so... Walter Levi or Walter was a, was a telephone. So Bucky Walter was a payphone because you put a nickel in the payphone. If you travel through Boonville today, you won't find any Bucky Walters anywhere. In fact, if you ask someone if they know Bootling, chances are you'll get a response like this. Nope. <laughs> I don't either. What's that? Never heard of it. I, I was going to say, is it a beer? At most, you find a few wines and beers that use Bootling on their labels. It's all made up words. It's made up, made up places, names. I, I, it's, it's just not applicable anymore. I mean, maybe 30 words. Maybe. That was Joe, one of the owners of Foresight Wines. And if there are really only 30 words left, is Bootling even a language at all? While Bootling may contain many unique words, it lacks its own grammatical structure. Bootling isn't a language or even a dialect of English. Lingo, or jargon, is more like it. It has barely 1,500 words. So why preserve a jargon? We spoke with Stanford professor and sociolinguist, Dr. Penny Eckert, to better understand the process behind language preservation and why languages die. Violence, cultural violence. Languages don't just say, okay, I'm sorry, and walk away, right? Languages get killed. They don't just die of natural causes. There's value to preserving niche languages. They help us understand how the members of a community like Boonville perceive the world. And while that's noble and all, Penny's not optimistic about the odds. Language preservation has not been a real success. Um, It's really fighting against a very strong tide, if you ask me.
Bootling is deeply tied to the community of Boonville, especially for older folks. But at the same time, it was created to exclude people. Is Bootling, with its strange words and historical anecdotes, something we want to preserve? There aren't that many Bootling speakers left, but one of the most well-known is Wes Smoot. Woke up the other day and dreamed a word, a uh, word for uh, hotcakes. Yeah, that's horse blankets. Well, I got to thinking, you know, uh, hotcakes, yeah, that's fine. But there's waffles, too. Now, there's no word in bootling for waffles. What in the world would a waffle be? And I thought, and I thought, and finally I called the table up. I said, I got a new boot word. See what you think about it. What's that? I said, checkerboard. The checkerboard? Yeah. Well, what's that? And I said, well, a horse blanket is hot cake. Oh, he said, that's a waffle in it. That's not a city. Check the words of waffle. Well, that was great, man. And it was a ball team to pike to the type of neck since it's, that Z's just pikes right through you. What I said was, uh, was uh, it was, seemed like a good time to go to the bathroom. That coffee goes right through you. And then there's Rod DeWitt, the one with the dictionary. He and Wes are lifelong friends. These two men are some of the last people in town to harp boot. Rupee Hobbin harps, with my kidneys in town here. Rod also considers himself a bit of a musician. That's how Rod got his boot name, Tubbs. Tubbs, in bootling, means drums, because Rod's a drummer. The story behind how Wes got his boot name is a little longer. My name is Deacon. When I was young, in school, and I was backwards and shy and bashful. But I looked, I looked around, what a deacon bootling is to look. Mm. To look is to deacon. Mm. And I was looking around, and I said, well, there's Wes, he's deacon again. <laughs> deacon just stuck with me the rest of my life. Wes grew up in Yorkville, a town neighboring Boonville. He says he didn't learn bootling until well into his adult life. After he got married, he moved into Boonville and found out about the bootling club. And I didn't understand a word was going on, and I decided then that I'd better learn something about that because I'm pretty sure they're talking about me and I don't understand it. Rod has a similar story of growing up outside of Boonville, hearing people speak in bootling, and deciding to learn it himself. We'd be up on a, on a, you know, up a deer camp, sitting around the fire, and they'd be talking naughty bootling, which got my interest. But then also, I wanted to find out what they were saying about me. Bootling is impossible to separate from the culture of Boonville. The sheep, the apples, the cattle. It's an agrarian lifestyle. Things were slower. People had a good sense of humor about themselves and about other people. Um, you know, people just didn't take stuff as personally and they weren't in such a hurry. Any Anytime you go way back in time like that, things are going to be slower and simpler. Bootling is an integral part of all of that. A way of life that's gone. Oh, I'd like to years. see Boonville set back about 
50 years. Get back to the old days. The old timers. We came, we came about this world just about the right time. Because it's not going to get no better, I don't think. Wes speaks Bootling because it represents that world. The one he wants to live in. Speaking doesn't just remind him of that time. It keeps it alive. But is this desire to go back in time also driving Bootling towards extinction? The reason for it is we got no young people interested in it. This valley, the population is roughly 80% Hispanic. And they can't even speak English, much less Boonling. And they're not interested in it whatsoever. They're not going to learn it. So is Bootling doomed? Wes doesn't think so. In my mind now, Bootling will never die. There's been too many documentaries, newspaper articles, television articles. There's too many, too much Bootling out in the media right now. It'll never die. Once you learn, you never forget. Maybe it's not just the new people moving in who are killing Bootling. Maybe it's the people who already live here. Anderson Valley is a quirky little place, um, and it's hard to ever be uh, an insider here unless you were born here or your great-grandparents were born here. That was Fal Allen, head brewmaster of the Anderson Valley Brewing Company. He's a new Bootling speaker. And here's Joe again on that same idea of exclusion. You were only allowed to speak Bootling in the valley. If you got caught speaking it out of the valley, that was grounds for a beatdown. After all, a lingo built for gossiping is bound to have some colorful words. And because of that, it mainly attracted men. So the women, they'd understand it, but they wouldn't, you know, be potty mouth kind of thing. And that may be why the women didn't speak a lot of Bootling. Here's Doug on some of the underbelly of the jargon. And Bootling isn't just sexist, it's also racist. A Borch would be a Chinese person. A Bork would be a Jew, like a Borkike. Borg is really politically incorrect. A Borg is a Mexican from Borg Reeser. Yeah. It's all yeah. in good fun. Yeah. I mean, th this language is so politically incorrect, you'd be shut down in a heartbeat. <laughs> For Joe of Foresight Wines, the culture that Bootling came from is not one he wants to revisit. You know, we're talking about women not voting, and I mean, there's just like, how much do we want to regurgitate? Like, it, I don't, I don't know. It, uh, it was a tough time here. Other than the nursery rhymes, everything else is so derogatory and so cuss word, and so it's just not applicable. There's no sheep ranchers left. Why are you going to talk about a white spot? There's no white spots anymore. But yeah, that's why it has to die. That's why it's dead. Some newcomers to Boonville want Bootling gone. But others are really enthusiastic about it. People like Martha, a woman who works at Boonville's old general store, 
and moved to Boonville a few months ago. For Fal, it's worth learning because it's one of the few regional languages of its kind. As far as Boonling goes, I've tried to learn as much as I can and like the idea of supporting the language. You know, it's only one of three American lingos that are recognized, um, along with Hawaiian, Pidgin English, and Cajun. And for Wes, the reason for keeping Boonling alive is very personal. When I was a kid, uh, I was pretty much a loner because there were no other kids around me. The closest one was about oh, three quarters of a mile from me. This kid's name was Stanley. Stanley was paralyzed. And uh, I would go play with him, but I'd have to help hold him up and walk him around because he was completely paralyzed from infant. And uh, that was the only kid that I had to play with. As someone who didn't have many people to talk to growing up, Wes sees himself now as someone who is always talking. Bootling is an important way for Wes to express himself. It is also a crucial part of the way many people, including Wes, hold on to the history of the valley. That's one thing I learned when I was learning the language was, and I tell everybody that wants to learn about it, first uh, order of business is learn the history of the valley. Once you learn the history and know what the old-timers did and how they done things, that language will come a lot easier. It just falls in place. For Wes, it comes down to respect. I had all the respect in the world for the people that I ran around with that spoke the language because I learned from them. I'd been to foreign countries and everything else, and I never picked up their language like I did this one. For the current Boonville old-timers, people like Wes and Rod, Bootling reminds them of a time when they felt closer to the community, when they knew everyone who lived here. That's not the case now. For years, new people have been moving in, specifically Hispanic migrant workers who followed the grape harvests. Marianne, Wes's companion, is a little uncomfortable with the change. I mean, they were nice people, Some most, for the most part. Then they'd start bringing their families, and then it started getting crowded. And of course, they took over all the jobs because they were cheap. And their ranchers started selling off their properties to big business. So it's, it's been tough for a lot of them. Boonville is changing. Today, it's defined by different industries than it used to be. Tourism instead of ranching. Wineries instead of logging. The town has become a place that people stop in on their way to somewhere else. And so people look for that lost sense of community in a lingo their grandparents used to speak. So after all this, when we talk about language preservation, what does that really mean? It means not just documenting the words, but letting the language breathe letting it change. And for Bootling, that means adding new words that reflect how people in Boonville live today. Maybe not using old Bootling words people find offensive. And most of all, inviting everyone in the community to learn. This ability to change, to let go of even the most idyllic past, 
and to evolve is what keeps a language and all of us alive. Bootling is, is really a, a real part of this area and so I think it's important to preserve it and the culture that uh, surrounds it. It's all in good fun. Yeah. It's all yeah. in good fun. That's, you know, maybe part of, out of, you know, isolation and frustration where something like that even comes from. It's, it's probably when they're drunk. I'm just guessing. At one time, that's all this country had, apples and sheep. Now it's changed altogether different now. They were just changing faster than I could change with them. That story was produced by Karen G., Kat Ferguson, and Carolyn Stein. When you walk into a museum and look at a piece of art hung on the wall, do you ever think of its life off the wall? Turns out, every piece of art in a museum has a lot going on when it comes off display. All of it to keep the peace in the best condition possible so as many people as possible can see it for as long as possible. In this next story, we look in on the world of art preservation and discover the perils and paradoxes of keeping art alive. One that still, uh, it still stays with me, were a pair of leather sandals. So leather that's a couple thousand years old is like, you know, like those cheese doodles, not Cheetos, but the doodles, you know, that are just airy. And then I had this moment where I just froze and the hair on my neck just went up because the area where the owner's big toe was, was just really indented. Just took you right to this human connection, right? Someone wore these, you look at like a pair of Birkenstocks or something where you just wear into those sandals and you own them in this way. It was just a chilling moment, you know, took you millennia.
That was Michelle Barger, the head of conservation at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Michelle's job is to care for art pieces and some very old, delicate objects, like thousand-year-old leather sandals. Leather is a natural material, and obviously over time it will fall apart. So why is she putting so much energy into preserving it? We thought about that one for a while and realized it's all about the toe imprint. It's not really the leather Michelle's preserving. It's the connection to the person that wore them. So museum conservation preserves two things, the physical existence of an art piece and its intangible value. So much of art conservation is about slowing the natural process of aging. So what happens when we can't slow that process anymore? What's left? Does art die? Can art die? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before we get to that intangible value, first we have to understand just how careful museums are with the physical objects in their care. Picture this, a giant bookcase made of steel and lead with straw woven throughout the books. As it's being installed in an SFMOMA gallery, a quarter-inch piece of straw falls off. Disaster. A team of people swarm the sculpture, catalog the sample, photograph it, save it in a baggie, and meticulously record it for posterity. That seems insane. Why do that? Is it so bad if a quarter-inch piece of straw falls off? Would anybody even notice? Of course straw is going to fall off. It's straw. And after all that fuss, get this, they don't even reattach the straw. Trying to put it back on might further damage the piece, and anyway, it's so hard to know exactly where the straw came from. Even though it's just a quarter-inch piece of straw, it's valuable because it is part of this famous sculpture. In the world of art preservation, every tiny physical component of an art piece really, really matters. Though reattaching the straw isn't possible, if a larger chunk of the sculpture fell off, that's a different story. Then the piece would be taken to Michelle in the conservation studio. We actually got to go visit Michelle in SFMOMA's conservation studio. Michelle led us down a series of hallways and up a back stairwell into the conservation space. Traveling through these secret passageways, right behind the regular gallery walls, admittedly made us feel special. The space contained two levels. On the upper level, there were four large tables set up around the room with these special chairs, which were designed specifically for endless hours of detailed conservation work. Then we went downstairs. It kind of looked like an art studio. We all had this whoa moment. It was just so expansive and well-kept. It felt like we should be really quiet and careful not to touch anything. Michelle showed us around, opening drawers filled with pieces from past projects and mock-up samples for repairs. And took pieces of uh, newsprint. You guys can touch this if you feel it. It's pretty cool. 
but we were most curious about this huge sculpture near the floor-to-ceiling windows looking out onto the financial district. To me, it looked like sort of a tall columnar form with um, panels in it between um, light tan and dark brown and amber. And uh, There's sort of a lace-like network on the top of these three layers in the panels, and that's, say, it's 16 feet tall. So it really is demanding in the space. You walk in and you definitely notice it, one of the first things when you walk into a room. This piece is Neri Oxman's Agua Oja. Michelle and her team are preparing it for an exhibition in 2021. It's shaped like a huge cocoon made out of 3D printed panels that are sort of transparent and have a lattice pattern like the veins of a leaf. What's particularly interesting about this piece is how it's made out of super unconventional materials. printing is usually just used for prototyping, not for objects that are supposed to last. Our curator is interested in telling the story about this, but she wants to tell it near the beginning of that cycle. So if we're showing this work, if it continues to degrade at the rate it is now, it's going to look pretty degraded for the exhibition. It's even more vulnerable to deterioration because it's made out of cellulose, pectin, and chitin. Shrimp shells and dragonfly wings are made out of them too. And while pectin and chitin might be durable enough to last the lifetime of a shrimp or a dragonfly, they're not ideal for an artwork that's meant to be dismantled and assembled again and again to be shown in museums. This is all to say that Agua Oja is aging faster than most art pieces, testing the role of conservation. In the conservator's ideal world, Agua Oja would always look like it has never aged. But with this piece, that's just not possible. So the museum has to find some compromise between conserving it and showing it. Conservators put so much time into preparing art to be shown, but ultimately, they aren't the ones choosing when it's going to be shown. That's up to the curators. So my name is Elisa Alexander. I'm the assistant curator of American Art here at the Cantor. Um, and so that means that I am in charge of the American Art Collection, which spans from colonial to the present day. My particular area of specialty is modern and contemporary art, so most of my work um, revolves that part of the around that part of the collection. Um, but you know, it's many thousands of objects that are under my purview. Elisa feels like an art piece is really alive when it's up on a wall being shown and seen. Or in other words, its true life is a public one. But that poses a problem. If you don't show things, then they don't get to like live in a certain way. So you're like, well, do I push the amount of exposure time so that I can get the work out there because it's so important and interesting and everything's going to deteriorate anyways? Or do you really limit it? 
let's go back to Agua Oja. On the one hand, showing it exposes the piece to less than ideal temperatures, which speed up the deterioration of those delicate natural materials. But on the other hand, allowing museum goers to experience it preserves it in a different way. People remember it. Maybe a student chooses to write a paper about it. Maybe a scholar comes in and, you know, it sends them down this whole entire intellectual path. Um, maybe people come and they bring their friends and they show an object off because they just, they're very excited about it. Maybe an artist sees it um, and becomes inspired. Maybe the artist comes and sees their work hanging, right? And that is also a very powerful experience. Everyone who sees Agua Oja will see something different. You might see a cocoon, your mom sees two leaves folded together, your little sister, a tube of lipstick. Everyone perceives the same physical object, but they react differently. Because once you're an artist and you create something and you put it out into the world, no matter how hard you try, you can't control what people think about it or what is written about it. Um, and that is a really powerful and interesting thing that an art object starts to have its own life and its own biography. Well, no one can tell you what to think of a piece of art. When you're inside a museum, they tell you this. Don't touch it. But there are some exceptions. One is Andy Goldsworthy's Stone River, which is located just outside the Cantor Center for Visual Arts and the Anderson Collection on Stanford's campus. None of the don't touch rules apply to Stone River. It's a really long winding stone wall that looks a bit like a rattlesnake or a curvy spine. Goldsworthy didn't alter the stones, but assembled them so carefully and methodically that the wall is pretty sturdy though you can definitely move the stones, just like a loose tooth. Interacting with Stone River feels totally different than seeing art at one of the museums across the street. We could actually touch it. There was even a guy lying on a yoga mat against it with his dog. There was no one hovering over us, worrying about protecting it and conserving it. You can just tell by looking at it that it's aging. There was moss in the crevices, bird poop staining the rocks, and weeds growing up around the base. In other words, the piece is deteriorating. But that's exactly what Goldsworthy wanted. Goldsworthy's vision was about natural change with the environment. As Stone River deteriorates, the artist's vision is actually being preserved at the same time. What some conservators or curators might think of as degradation is just part of Stone River's intended life. But what if degradation wasn't part of its intended life? Would it be dead if it melded with the environment past the point of recognition? Elisa would say no. There is uh, no death of an art piece, in my opinion, even if the art object is destroyed. So what lives on? Returning to Michelle's sandals. Remember the cheese doodle ones. Even when they fall apart and degrade beyond the point of preservation, 
They'll still mean a lot to Michelle, and they'll still make her wonder about whoever wore them. We can serve art physically until we can't. And even when we stop trying, the art lives on. That story was produced by Liv Jenks, Lola McAllister, and Grace Zhang. You've been listening to State of the Human, the podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. This episode was produced by Liv Jenks, Lola McAllister, Grace Zhang, Karen G, Kat Ferguson, Carolyn Stein, Regina Kong, Ali Walner, and me, Andy Lee. With support from Tiffany Naiman, Christy Hartman, Jenny March, and Jonah Willingans. Special thanks to Jacob Langsner, Chris Laboa, Will Shan, Rachel Thompson, Aparna Verma, Melina Walling, and Aaron Wu for the reporting work for Mother of Falcons. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Program in Writing and Rhetoric, the Office of the Vice President for the Arts, and Bruce Braden. You can find this and every episode of State of the Human through our website and find out more about the Storytelling Project's live events, grants, and workshops. We're at storytelling.stanford.edu.